Joining me on the show today is one of Australia's funniest comedians, Mr. Frank Woodley. Now, some of you may know him from Lano and Woodley, and more recently he's been touring his own solo stand-up shows. So stay tuned for more. Welcome to Benjamin Mary McKay's Talk To Me. I'm your host, Benjamin, and as I said, joining me on the show today is comedian Frank Woodley. I chatted with him nearly a year ago, and uh, I think it's finally time for this interview to be released. So, joining me now is Mr. Frank Woodley. Sit back, relax, and enjoy. Welcome to the show. Thank you for joining me today. Thanks for having me, Benjamin. It's good now, to be here. Now, you're a comedian, so how would you describe your style of comedy? Uh, it's... Uh... I think um, it's very uh, personal, you know. Every one of the things about comedy, and I, I'm sure it's true for for most um, performance arts, but particularly if you're writing it, you're creating it, you know, you're writing it and you're performing it. Um, the the real secret is to find out what's idiosyncratic about you mm-hmm. personally. You know, um, all great stand-up comedians and all oh, comedians of all sorts, but you know, they've got they've got this weird cocktail of elements that is just, it's them, mm. you know, that's the thing that makes it um, uh, powerful, I think. And like, I, I was just saying, we did a gig, uh, the Marion Hotel last night, and there was about um, five or six other comedians on, you know, and it was just fantastic to see how the, they were all very, very different and um, and all really effective, and it was... The real secret is, you know, they, it sounds a bit pretentious, but they talk about, you know, finding your voice. Like, mm-hmm. what is it about your comedy? So, obviously, I also come from a big tradition of the kind of clowning, um, mm. child man sort of tradition, you know. Also, I love I love uh, physical and visual humour. But certainly last night, the majority of what I did was verbal. But still, it's in that sort of... Um, like, there's an idea that... Uh, there's different ways of thinking about comedy, but one of the ideas, one way of looking at it is this idea that comedians are either the trickster or the fool. I don't know if you've heard, heard that heard idea. That, yeah. So the, the, the trickster basically is knowing and with the audience, you're laughing with the trickster mm. and you have the sort of the high status with the trickster and you're laughing at the world together. Yeah. And the fool is like a sort of a scapegoat in a sense you laugh at the fool you know um and i think it's interesting though because even comedians who play the fool the audience has to feel that there's a trickster pulling the the strings to a certain extent and then that gives you the license to not feel like you're bullying this this fool but rather the fool is sort of being it's a cathartic thing and and the performer is giving you license to laugh at them, if that yeah, makes sense. So I, I definitely uh, think I come from that tradition of the fool as opposed to the, the trickster, you know. And what do you most enjoy about being a comedian? Um, I think uh, there's something amazingly... Uh, like, you have to be in the moment, you know. It's a bit like... I think the same thrill that that people who do extreme sports might get out of it, you know, like um, surfing 30-foot waves or, you know... It's the adrenaline. Yeah, the, the adrenaline and the feeling that you know that if you if you stop concentrating, you can't afford to stop concentrating 
because it couldn't de- derail. And when it derails, the kind of public humiliation is so, you know, is so uh, painful that it's terrifying, you know. Mm. So it keeps your mind focused. So I think there's just something lovely about being in that playful, joyful um, mental space of, of comedy and humour, but also if you're the one whose responsibility it is to do the, to, to create it, you know, you just have to be so present. Mm. You know, I love, I love that feeling of being in that zone, you know. So you, as you mentioned, you perform a lot of physical comedy. Uh, how did you train to be able to do all those stunts, if you like? Well, I mean, the reality is that I'm, I'm only, um, I don't have a great deal of technical skill in terms of my my physical performance. You know, I'm not, I'm not an acrobat. Or I'm not, um, you know, I'm not a, a dancer or anything like that. Um, but. You know, I sometimes joke and say, you know, the main thing you need to have to do the kind of physical comedy that I do is no self-respect. You know, you just got to be prepared to do the things that other people would go, well, I'd be a bit embarrassed to do that. But then, you know, I think I'm naturally very expressive with my body and also um, very... uh, It's like there's a certain kind of coordination that is almost more... It's like storytelling coordination I think of it which is sort of like that ability to enter into it's kind of just acting as well but you know the difference between some people can can fake a trip yeah and some people can't because you need to you need to be able to surrender your body so when for example if you if your foot um, hooks the edge of a curb or something you know the, the gutter or something like that or you trip on a on a step or something like that even though you're controlling it, you also need to know which parts of your body to surrender and relax and let them actually just respond to being thrown off balance. So don't control those yeah. bits, let them actually be chaotic. But I think that that's actually a kind of a natural... Some people just have that ability to sort of surrender to their imagination but also control it at the same time. Mm. And other people find it very difficult. So. Um, you know, just a bit like some people can sing in tune more easily than others. Yes. You can train to a certain extent, but but you can it's only got make a bad singer good, not great. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So I think it's just just partly a natural a natural thing. But then, having said that, I have watched um, thousands of hours of physical comedians, the greats, Buster Keaton and Chaplin and Harold Lloyd and and also Jerry Lewis, Peter Sellers, all all of the masters. And I have tried to, in the privacy of my own home, you know, emulate them, try to see if I can learn from them, learn what they're doing. And um, so I'm kind of, to a large degree, I'm self-taught, but not in a vacuum, you know, by going directly to the source. And so I haven't done, I haven't been to um, physical, you know, there's like a, a, a school called Lecoq, which is like a famous French physical theatre school. I think, um, what's the, um, some absolutely amazing actors have been to Lecoq. Um, Jeffrey Rush went to Lecoq and you can see in his performance he's a very good physical communicator and great physical comedian as well as a great physical actor, you know. Uh, But I, I never did anything like that, it's just sort of, yeah. So how would you describe your journey into the Australian limelight? Um, 
I don't know if I'm in the limelight. I'm sort of in the fringe of the limelight, maybe. Um, what's that little movement in the shadow over there? Right? Um, do you get recognised as you walk down the street sometimes? I do, but only to the extent that it's really lovely. Like mm. it's not. It's not to the point where it's an inconvenience or anything like that. You know, it's just every now and then. Some. Although the other day, <laughs> the other day I was um, at my local supermarket, and there was a guy. Um, sort of on the ground begging out the front and he was about about 30 and I sort of you know I, I often will give to people like that in that kind of circumstance but there was just something where he had all um, I think he had a bong on the concrete in front of him and a whole lot of um, uh, dr- drug paraphernalia and it just I had this little reflex where I went oh you know what I don't feel like I want to give this guy some money and as I walked past he looked up and and I heard him go oh you you've never been funny (laughs) heckling from the from the guy so I do get recognised but sometimes by people who you know aren't that impressed in fact there was a guy I was walking my dog for for a while at the park and I met this guy and got to know him quite well and after I talked to him just about life in general you know about six times he said to me you know so I've just got to get this off off my chest um what you do on stage just really irritates me I thought I don't think you needed to tell me that at all um but uh you know really it's been a very long long process I think some people think that if you get on the telly once, you know, suddenly you'll be a household name kind of thing. Like and it really doesn't work like that. You know, you, you, um, in fact, you think, like I've had experiences where I did something on telly that was, that died. Mm. And it's like, you feel, oh my God, my career's over. I've, everybody, I've been exposed as the fraud that I am. I'm not really very good. It's finished. It, and nobody even notices right and then you do something that's brilliant and you go oh my god i'm going to be recognized as the genius that i am and nobody even notices you know it's much more about just doing um doing doing it as a as a craft you know just keeping that's that's the way i think about it just keeping on uh doing the work enjoying the work um and and slowly slowly uh, developing yourself and even you know limelight is a little bit of a um, it's it's so fickle you don't want to be depending on on kind of your name as a su- as such you've really got to just focus on the work because you know it's like I remember even Seinfeld I heard Seinfeld say that after Seinfeld he went back to doing um, writing new material for stand-up and he said, you know, it was amazing because he was trying out new stuff. And even with Seinfeld, a lot of his new stuff wasn't great. You know, um, every comedian, you know, has to have right some duds as well, you know. And he said it, it was really interesting. It's like he felt like from all of those years of Seinfeld, that gave him three jokes buffer. So if he did a joke that wasn't very good, the audience would kind of go, well, oh, that's all right, he's Seinfeld. And if he did another joke, followed that with another yeah. joke that wasn't very good, they'd go, huh, well, he's Seinfeld, but um, yeah, right, I was expecting to be better than this. Another third joke, 
and if it's bad, then the audience go, actually, he's lost it. I don't like him anymore. Mm. It's just, you know, it's, it's, there's not really... Um, can't it, rely on the you, can't, you can't rely on it. Yeah, you've got to rely on the quality of what you're producing. So, mm. yeah. Well, you rose to fame as such with your comic partner, uh, Colin Lane. Did you find it difficult to break away from Lane and Woodley? Yeah, it was really hard for the first, particularly for the first 12 months, because um, I was so um, established in those, in the habits of what worked in that mm. format, you know. And my role, essentially, with um, with Cole was to be just completely be a child, be irresponsible, selfish, sabotage the act, go off on flights of fantasy, have no no discipline. Mm. You know that was actually my job. And Cole would be the sort of the the more um, the straight man, the straight man, and the authority in the act. But I found when I started doing solo stuff, I found that. It was too loose. Like, you know, I would go off on some tangential improvisation in Lane Woodley, and if it went down a, a dead end and it was a bit of a dud, Cole would just yell at me and abuse me for wasting the audience's time. He'd say, there's people that have come here to pay money, they haven't come here to see that crap that you're doing. And that would be hilarious. And it would almost be like the stuff that I did was just there as a setup for him to do his thing. But when I was, you know, first doing the solo stuff, I'd go off on some little tangent and I had no safety net. I had no way to, you know, bounce to save back. it, to bounce back. And um, so it, it was almost like um, somebody said, we were talking about um, that kind of quality and they were saying, you know, you need that structure. You need the strength. Like if you imagine um, you've got a stick of hard rubber about the size of a, a pencil, say, and you throw it into the ground and it'll bend and sp spring up, you know, it'll yep. bounce up. But if you have a piece of string that's got no leverage, no, you know, um, structure, it'll just go into the ground. So it was like I was just too, too loose. Mm. So over that six to 12 months, I had to evolve where now when I'm doing the solo stuff it's almost like I'm both both those characters I, I have a more um, adult mature presence on stage as well as then going off into the child side of things so yeah. it did take me quite a while to find find what would work well as a comedian doing stand-up I'm sure you've had some very strange encounters with hecklers What's been the funniest or the weirdest you've had to deal with? Um, yeah, there have been there have been some peculiar ones. There was one that was great where me and Cole were doing a show in Frankston, which is um, a town out of Melbourne, and um, someone was heckling from the audience, and we thought they were drunk, mm -hmm. and. So we started kind of responding in the, in the way that you do, which is sort of you try to shut them down basically because you know obviously they haven't they're not censoring themselves yeah. they you know and they were they were affecting the rhythms of the show and we sort of were a little bit um, not cruel but just like a bit firm and um, and then it became apparent that the person had had a head injury and they were they, it was a disability issue. So it was all a bit awkward and a bit tense. And then 
and they were they but they were heckling us at the same time. So you don't want to patronise them and go, you're allowed to hang shit on us because because you've got a head injury. We're just going to let you be rude to us. You, yeah. you know what I mean? You're it's, in that real dilemma yeah. of politically correct, but not putting them in that patronising. Yeah, yeah that's situation. right. So so it was really uh, interesting. And then we ended up we were doing this magic trick, and. Um, we asked, uh, oh, that's right. I said, who wants Cole to be my sexy assistant? And then this woman who was the heckler with the head injury went, oh, I'll be your sexy assistant, like this. And we went, okay, great. Let's get her up on stage. And then it turned out she, um, she was in a wheelchair, right? So she, which we didn't even quite realise. And she comes around from the side and it's all getting really... People were laughing, but you could feel this tension. Mm. And then she couldn't... She couldn't get up, the, the ramp was a bit too steep. And so we kind of hung, teased her a bit because it was like, well, you've been being rude to us. So so almost like the least patronizing thing to do yeah. is go, well, you you know, you've been rude to us, but um, you know, I can't remember what we did, but it was very on that line of, well, is that inappropriate? But she was laughing and so you're sort of feeling, and then we got up on stage and it was just fantastic. We did this trick where it's the pulling the um, tablecloth out from underneath, yep. like a you know a pile of we we make this kind of pile of glasses and and uh, pull the tablecloth out, and we did that, and then we looked to her, and she just like gets up out of her wheelchair and it's like is she gonna fall over or what, and takes two little tottering steps forward and there's this pause and all this tension and then she goes. No, no, like this, and it just brought the house down. You know, it's fantastic. But then we just get her back in the chair, off into the audience. Yeah. Like, let's make that the Leave don't it indulge it anymore. You know, and then and then that worked really, really well. Yeah. So that was that was a really nice one. But I mean, that's one of the great things about live comedy is that um, you know I actually don't I don't mind hecklers or people calling out. 99% of the time, 99% of the time, it's something a bit different in the show. Adds mm. to, I have you to know. say, I, I did see your show at the Melbourne Comedy Festival, and the person I was with's phone rung, and you ended up answering it. All oh, right, all right, you were with. Um, I'm trying to think, and I said the whole thing about I acted like I was the person you, you, calling yeah, accidentally because I read the, the name. That was great. That, that, was, that was hilarious. Yeah, that was really funny. So yes, um, you certainly know how to deal yeah. with those scenarios. <laughs> Although afterwards, I thought with that, you know, when I wanted to get an audience participant up, and he said no, and he, and then I don't know, did I speak to you, I think or you was, did, yeah. and you said he's a stage, he's a stage manager? manager? And afterwards, I thought I should have said, well, if you're a stage manager, uh, don't you don't stage managers often make the announcement, turn off your phone? You know, like, yeah. a, and that was that night in bed. I think I sat up going, oh, I should have mentioned that he should have turned off his phone earlier. That you know, so um, you know, that's uh, that's the thing. You never get it right in terms of those yeah. improvised things. But um, but it does. That was a perfect example where, you know, that was one of the highlights of the show. The fact that this unexpected thing happened, mm. and um, and it was great as well. I love it when. You know, I'm trying to hang shit on the person, and I ended up revealing myself to be a bigger idiot than he was. <laughs> so it was great. That was a great night. I remember yeah. everyone was asking if that was a setup. Yeah, right, right. Yeah. Now, what would be your ideal project? Um, 
Well, I I have to say when I, when I did Woodley the TV series, mm. which I don't know if you saw any of that. I, I saw a couple. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, basically, that is my ideal project. So to be doing, um, I love doing the live comedy, absolutely, but um, making physical, visual comedy films, which that even though it's a TV series, that's essentially what it was. That's the thing that I'm really, really passionate about. And unfortunately, because it's so expensive, I don't know if I'll ever get the chance to do it again. Mm. You know, I was really lucky that the ABC gave me Guernsey for eight episodes and, um, you know, it was an absolute passion yeah. project and I put my heart and soul into it. And that was very obvious um, from watching it. Right, oh, that's so good. Much into it. Yeah, so, um, you know, so my ideal project would be to, um, to make, make films or TV in that mm. basic mould, but... As I said, you know, I'm not, um, I'm not expecting that to happen actually because it's just, it's just um, very expensive, and so it's very difficult to, to get those kind of projects up. I've, I've really spent the last 20, 25 years trying to get projects like that up, and I've been lucky enough to. I did the Adventures of Leonard Woodley in '97 and '99. And then it wasn't until 2012 that I made Woodley. So, and it's not as if I wasn't trying to get projects up like that in the interim. Yeah. You know, so I don't really anticipate that I'll ever get the chance to there's do it a, again. There's but a lot of work in it for performers trying to get a TV show up. Yeah, it's, yeah. It's, yeah. Um, so if, that, if it turns out that they're the only two times I got to do that, I'll still be grateful because, you know, lots of very talented people don't get those opportunities but uh, what's been your most embarrassing moment on stage um, most embarrassing moment on stage um, I think like in an honest no, this is not a I haven't got a, this is not like a funny answer mm. but um, the most sort of mortifying experience that I had on stage was when me and Colin um, uh, went to the Montreal Festival in 2001, I think, and we'd been trying to convince the management there that we, you know, that they should have us, that we, we were an appropriate act, and they were sort of going, oh, and this had been for, for quite a long time, about 10 years, you know, previous to that, and even a bit more. And they'd been going, oh, we think, we don't know if it'll work over there. And I was passionate and kind of a bit like, um, what do you say, like, in, not incensed, but, you know, kind of righteously incensed or something that, that I knew we could make it work sort of thing. Mm. But I, I'd kind of gotten a bit too invested in proving to them or yeah. prov and proving to myself that we could do that. And then we went over there. And then we did this gig in um, in this little club, and we we just died. And it was like at that point, not completely died, but all these things that had been going really well. Um, just it might have been something about the, our accents. They didn't understand our accents, and we hadn't done enough. What we should have done is done trial shows to those audiences yeah. and worked out what what worked. Because actually, we ended up doing a full show in Montreal. And um, we did it for a week, I think. And 
what happened was the first 10 minutes of the show would be a bit strange and then once they hooked in then the last 50 minutes of the show would be completely normal and yeah. we'd have won the audience over it. and that was really good to do that but this was our first gig there and it was our first five minutes and I remember just basically being in shock that it wasn't working what do you, you know, try and do with an audience in that scenario where they're not clicking or they're not understanding well, I think now, I think I would be much, much more relaxed about it. But at that time, and it was because of the fact that this pressure had built over 10 yeah. years of me feeling like, no, we can make this work. And, and I, I wanted it too much, you know. And it is a um, big festival just to last. Yeah, so. and so it's like I'd kind of, um, I was too attached to the result. But now the reality is that there's nothing more attractive, actually, than someone failing charmingly you know if someone fails but they do it kind of grace graciously or gracefully sort of you just love them it's a really um because it's like they've become vulnerable and we're all afraid of exposing our vulnerability but if you see someone you know become exposed like that but then they don't um they're not suddenly filled with panic and self-loathing and everything. They can kind of laugh at themselves. Yeah. Well, it's very likable. Yeah, so I've, I've kind of now realised that, that in any situation, even if you're not getting big laughs, if you just go, well, that's okay. I'm just going to be friendly. Mm. I'm not going to be hilarious tonight. I'm just going to be friendly. Then it's kind of a safety net where you can't lose. And then because of that, usually, almost always... You then win the win the crowd over, and it and it work. You know, you end up You're being still funny. On top, yeah. yeah. So, what is the process that you go through to create a stand-up comedy show? I think lots of uh, every writer has a different sort of way about doing it. I I, I have um, two different kinds of shows that I've created so far. One that is very narrative-based and more theatrical mm -hmm. and another one that is more kind of classic stand-up which is just bits and pieces and even when I do classic stand-up it still has a variety aspect in it so like you said you saw Fool's Gold a couple of physical pieces and a bit of music as yep. well so some variety but really it's just um, a whole lot of disparate ideas that are kind of cobbled together you know um, so they're the two forms and they both have slightly different processes but, but essentially, it's that you take, I will take, um, I'm constantly creating like what I call a, a sort of a, um, sounds a bit um, wet, but like a treasure chest of stuff. Mm -hmm. So um, I'm writing notes and filing things away and doing drawings and stuff all the time. So I have like a whole lot of possible stuff to draw on, mm. you know. And then I'll start with with a specific idea, either it's an idea for a story that I might might be going to tell or it might be a um, uh, just an idea. For example, this is this is two different um, two different sorts of ideas. Um, if it's a story, I had an experience. Uh, this is from my previous show, uh, um, Amusement Park. 
I had an experience where I went to Uluru and then we went to another place, Katatuda, near there and I needed to have a poo and there were no public toilets and then I saw this tree on the horizon and I walked out and at the tree, it was like this is just red dirt and this one tree and I thought I'll just feel safer if I'm near that tree and I walk over and there was like a ring of toilet paper around this tree because everybody obviously chose that tree and it was pretty gross. But then I thought, okay, this is a place to do it. And I squatted down, and I swear this is true. At that point when I'm squatting down, having a poo in the desert, a helicopter flies over, and it hovers above me, and they thought it was hilarious, you know. And that was a true experience. So I went, okay, I've got this story. I can turn that into a comic routine. And then that ended up turning into, like, about an eight-minute comic routine based on um, brainstorming all sorts of different possible jokes that I could do around that. And... um, but then there might be a routine that is uh, more like a comic idea. For example, I had an idea about, you know, there's the um, Olympics for people with physical disabilities. Mm. Well, couldn't there be an Olympics for people with psychological disabilities? So I do the 100 metres panic attack and the bipolar marathon and all these different sort of mental illness um, jokes. Um, but they're two really different types of mm. comic routines. So one's got a story that you... Personal experience. Yeah, personal experience. And certainly I don't let the truth get in the way of a good story. So I'll exaggerate and change things. And But that's kind of the structure that you build from. But then the other one is more just like a comic concept, which you then develop and, mm. you know, just brainstorm. And, and then at the same time, I've got those... Um, things in the treasure chest that might occur to me that I can throw in throw in as well. And how know. much refinement is there from your opening night to closing wherever, you know, the tour? Yeah, I, I reckon that well, it gets more and more subtle so mm-hmm. when I do um, so, so if I'm going to do an hour show I reckon I write two and a half hours worth of material and start performing that and it gets refined down to the hour that I've decided oh this is what I'm going to do for this show and so that also means in the treasure chest you've got in terms of the hour and a half that got cut mm. some of that stuff is like will never work and you go I never need to look yeah, at really, that again some of it, yes, but there might be 20 minutes of stuff that you go oh, I could do something with this uh, you know and uh, so then cut it down to an hour and then then start tweaking that hour and so, so for maybe the first 20 shows, I'll be doing significant rewriting over the course of those 20 shows. And then after that, I still keep tweaking things, but it's much more subtle. Mm. You know, so it might be just adding on an extra joke at the end of something or cutting something out. Or One of the things I love doing is you, you discover... Um, I don't know if you've had this same experience in the, in the writing that, that you've done and the performing... But you discover that some ideas need to be performed somewhat aggressively, like on the front foot, for them to work. You need to really sell them. Yeah. But other ideas don't need... Like, it's just the the idea is so strong, or a particular type of idea, that you don't need to sell it at all. You just need to offer it. And, and people and, take and it. And people, you know, so I love in that, over the first 20 shows, I work out oh, this is the material that I don't need to even perform. Mm. I just need to do it or say, say it, it and then you know, and that will, that will actually create the, the best impact. And that's a beautiful place to perform mm. from. I love that feeling where it can be so subtle. 
But then there's other bits where you go, oh, actually, that idea needs me to really put lots of commitment into it and energy. And, you know, so that's one of the things that gets refined over that time, you know. Now, you're also in the upcoming movie Oddball. What can you tell me about this film? It's based on a true story. I've just got a very small part in Mm. it. Um, But it's based in a a true story. Uh, Shane Jacobson is playing this chap called uh, Swampy, who really does live in Warrnambool. And I don't know, I don't know the, how true it is, but, but um, basically in the film, it's a family film, a kid's film, um, there's a colony of fairy penguins on this island and he trains a dog, and they're getting decimated by foxes, and he trains a dog, him and his, in the, in the film it's him and his granddaughter, but I don't know if that's... The, the, the real thing um, he trains a dog to protect the penguins from the foxes mm-hmm. and uh, so it's uh, it's an amazing like it was incredible on the shoot you know they're, they're trying to wrangle dogs are hard enough to work with in a film but then they've got penguins and foxes um, I think on one of the days of the filming they, I said oh you know foxes are notoriously difficult to train how, how's that going? And they said, "Oh, we've trained the foxes to the point where they will—they will—they're now only attacking one of the handlers. So they hadn't actually got the foxes to do anything on command at that stage, but they'd managed to not be attacked yeah. by them. Um, so it was kind of pretty, pretty chaotic, I think. But um, I've seen a little bit of the footage mm-hmm. of it. I play the dog catcher, actually. I'm the baddie in it, which was nice—a a nice change for me. I haven't done that before, and." Um, I don't know if I pulled it off, but I certainly enjoyed having a go. Um, and uh, and I've seen some of the footage, and it just looks really beautiful. And it's a it's a you know it's a great story. So I, I actually think it could be really well received. And when is that one coming out? Um, I think sometime next year. Sometime next year. Now, what have you got lined up over the next six months or a year that you can tell our listeners about? Um, well, I'm not. I'm just starting to think now about what I'm going to do next year in terms of writing you know and you will I put together a new stand-up show or something more theatrical or um, and I've got a bit of touring of Fool's Gold that I'm doing I'm going to Darwin and a few different places with that um, but I'm also um, I'm in the middle of writing and illustrating some mystery novels for um, primary school kids so that's a whole other departure yeah. I've never done that before and um I'm trying to really learn, get an understanding of those uh, devices and it's really fascinating. But then I'm also trying to um, develop my illustrating skills, which I've, I've done drawing all my life for sort of pleasure as a re- relaxation thing, but it's a very different thing to create a set of illustrations where they're consistent in their style and, you know, for a whole book. So that's a bit of a challenge for me, but I'm, I'm really enjoying it and, and quite a diversion from you know, anything, anything I've done, done before. Yeah. Well, finally, what advice would you offer to anyone looking to become a comedian? Um, you know, the, the sort of the joke response that I feel like saying is, my first piece of advice is don't listen to anybody else's advice. Um, but I think that came into my head because, you know, ultimately... You've got to have a hunger for it mm. um, because it's not 
It's not easy, it's psychologically gruelling, it's fun, it's a lot of fun, it's thrilling and, and there's a great community of comedians and so it's, you know, socially very uh, enriching and, and that sort of stuff. But it's not easy, it's, um, it's very uh, taxing. taxing psychologically, you know, um, particularly for some people more than others some people are maybe a little bit more um playful and it's a bit easier for them but um and so you've got to really want it or else it's not worth it because you won't you won't uh be able to you know suffer the slings and arrows if you don't really want it and then ultimately you just have to do do it you have to learn through doing so find opportunities to perform that's that's I think is my only advice if you want to do it keep um, keep writing keep just practice creating however whatever your process is and then find opportunities to perform and bits that work do them again bits that don't work try to rewrite and if they can't rewrite them and can't make them work Drop them and move on, and just keep keep performing. And tr- it's hard, but try to find opportunities to perform um, to decent size audiences, because it's much easier to perform to to even even a hundred people, even eighty people. But if they're packed into a into a room. So when I say decent, I mean because the thing is that lots of stand-up comedians do little little rooms, and there's only 15 people in the audience, and that's actually really hard. Yeah, because you can see if they're not laughing. Yeah, exactly. You can feel, and also they feel self-conscious, so they don't tend to laugh as easily. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's much much more difficult. So it's a little bit like, you know, if you're going to be a, if you're going to learn to play guitar. Well, you need to play on a good instrument. If you go to like a cheap, cheap guitar, they're harder to play. So not only do you not have the technical ability yet, but you're pushing shit uphill because you're playing an instrument that even would be difficult to play for a consummate musician because it's a cheap, crappy instrument. And same sort of thing, you've got to try to give yourself a context that will make it as easy as possible. So you know benefit concerts where there's a crowd there or try out nights where there's a crowd there um you know find out which venues there are crowds at even you know if like if you're young you know it might even be like school camp concerts or things basically things where there's an audience there you know that's what that's what i think it's good to try to look for opportunities to do that um wherever you can Wonderful. Well, thank you very much for your time today and coming on the show. Thank you, Benjamin. It's been a pleasure to talk to you. That was my chat with comedian Frank Woodley. Now, one of our supporters, Roadshow Entertainment, has got some new releases out this month, including ABC's Black Comedy, the Keanu Reeves movie John Wick, the TV series Siblings, Hunger Games Mockingjay Part 1, and Horns. Now, my favourite of these releases is The Hunger Games Mockingjay Part 1, which when I reviewed it at the cinemas, I gave it four and a half stars, and I am sticking to that because it is such a wonderful film that can be enjoyed by people of all ages, so I do encourage you to get that one. 
Horns is a Daniel Radcliffe movie uh, based off the Stephen King novel. Now, it is quite dark and graphic, but it is more of a mystery thriller than a horror film. So um, I did find it a little bit easier to stomach than I might have. Uh, but it is, as I said, quite dark. Uh, the storyline is good. Some of the acting can be a little bit inconsistent um, in terms of the strength of performances. But overall, it's a good, solid film. Uh, but nothing overly amazing. The Keanu Reeves movie, John Wick, it had a lot of hype, but I wasn't overly impressed with it. Um, it lacked in story. Keanu Reeves' performance was strong, but as I said, the storyline lacked, which meant the movie did fall a little bit flat. And the two TV series out this month, uh, ABC's Black Comedy and Siblings, are both uh, comedy series, and neither of them are overly funny. They both try way too hard uh, to be funny, and that results in just awkward, uh, not funny moments constantly throughout those two series. So uh, a couple of great releases and a couple of fairly average ones too. And thanks to Palace Nova Cinemas, I've been able to check out a couple of films, including The Second Best Exotic Marigold Hotel, which is a wonderful movie. It's a British comedy, and it's even better than the first instalment, which was loved by people all over the world. So if you enjoyed the first one, or even if you didn't, I still would encourage you to go see the second one, because it is funny from beginning to end, but it also has some very poignant moments, which does make it a much stronger film. And the other film I saw, thanks to Palace Nova Cinemas, was A Most Violent Year. Now, the title obviously suggests um, it's quite a violent film. It's actually not. Um, not a lot happens during the film. And while it's shot beautifully and the score is amazing, the acting is fairly strong, but the lack of plot means that it does become a rather boring couple of hours. And thanks to Paramount Pictures, I was able to check out Project Almanac before its release on, uh, on last Thursday, but I saw it on the Monday. And Project Almanac does have a strong basis, but it loses its originality towards the end of the film, and the found footage style of which it's shot in does make it very difficult to watch as a shaky camera. The entire film can become very, very tedious. And I'll be back with more reviews from all our supporters next month. So don't forget while you're around to check out all of the supporters, Roadshow Entertainment, Madman Entertainment, Mad Zombie Collectibles, and Palace Nova Cinemas. Well, I'll be back next month with a brand new episode. I've been your host, Benjamin Man McKay. See you next time.